I'm dedicating this podcast for the Rafur Shlema of my father, Shlomo ben Yehuda. I'm Yehuda ben Shlomo, so I'm named after his, his father. He's Shlomo ben Yehuda. And this is this very uh, enigmatic Egel Hazahav. Now, I'm, I'm going to pick up from last week, because last week we looked at this Rashi, and um, it says, and they made an Egel Masecha. They made this golden calf. Vayomru. Now, who's the Vayomru? Vayomru, you might think it was the Jews. But Rashi, if you look down here, Mikan she'erev rav she'alu mimitzrayim, heim she'nikalu al Aaron. It was the Erev rav. We're blaming the other. You know, um, <laughs> in, uh, in early November, in the days of World War II, a sergeant at an army base in the deep south gets a call from a woman and she says, so, we live near the base, and for Thanksgiving, we'd like to entertain a few soldiers at our house. And the sergeant says, wonderful, we'll send them over. And on behalf of the army, thank you for your hospitality. She says, it's our pleasure, but sergeant, one more thing. Please don't send us any Jews. He pauses and then says, understood, ma'am. Thanksgiving Day comes, and the woman is setting the table and carving the turkey, and there's a knock on the door. And she opens the door, and to her utter shock, there are five African-American men in uniform standing there. I know you've heard this before, but I just love this. So she snaps, what are you doing here? And one of the soldiers says, we understand that you invited us for Thanksgiving, ma'am. She says, that's not what I meant. What a terrible mistake. To which the soldier says, no, ma'am. Sergeant Goldberg never makes mistakes. This is from... Joseph Telushkin's Jewish humor. And I've loved this joke because there's so much of, you know, mid-century American Jewish experience embedded in it. But the classic joke comes to me after the era of Rav in a new light. Because the Jewish sergeant and the African-American soldiers, basically the joke is on, on her. Look now, we stuck it to that bigot. But encoded in that joke is something else, something very uncomfortable about white Jewish privilege. Yes, the clever Jew gets the upper hand against the anti-Semite. That's a classical trope of Jewish jokes. But what about the hapless African-American? Is this really about solidarity? Or is this Sergeant Goldberg manipulating them? Did the sergeant put those unwitting soldiers in a potentially dangerous situation to prove a point? Try flipping the races in the joke and you'll see there's a power dynamic at play that we shouldn't ignore. The Jew who passes as white wielding power over the African-American. The joke only works because the Jew can pass as white and has a privilege the African-American does not. Now let's go back to our Rashi. <laughs> we have to blame. We're in the blame game and this, this uh, podcast is called Blame the Riffraff. Now I'm picking up from last week. Remember, Yesh Omrim, Mika Hayasham, because the Machshefe Erev Rav, the sorcerers of the Erev Rav, Olu Mehem in Mitzrayim. So the Erev Rav comes up with them, and with the Erev Rav comes these wizards. And some say, not just the wizards, but Micah, that's the guy in the brick that Moshe showed the Abishta and said, okay, Lomo Hareosa. What the hell are you doing? 
Everyone was doing fine. They had their white right quota of bricks until you sent me to Paro. And now he's doubled the quota and has said anyone who's short quota, put the baby in the brick. Here, look at the baby. And the, 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 the Yalkut 283, very dark medrash we explored last week, suggests that God says, you know, they're going to be a thorn in your side. This is the era of Rav. Let them stay. These kids I know are going to be the era of Rav. So why don't you just leave them where they are? And to prove it to you, I'll give you this guy, Mika. And Mika is the one here who came out of the row of bricks. And he had the magic name. He throws it into the fire and out comes the Egel. Okay. Let's go back to the only time in... The Torah, the word Erev Rav, is mentioned. The only time, it's a hapax. And it's in chapter, chapter 12. Vayisu b'nei Yisrael me Ramses Sukoso, 600,000. And here, the only time in the Chumash, the word Erev Rav, this riffraff, this mixed multitude, comes up with them. Tzonu baka And Rashi says, taruves umos. They were a mixture of various nations, Shelgerim, who were converts. Rashi is suggesting that these actually uh, were converts. And I'm going to come back to the conversos in the 1600s and the use of Erevrav. Now, the, what is the meaning of the term Erevrav? Erev, starting with the first word, Ayn Reish Base, Professor Shaul Bar of uh, uh, University of Memphis notes in a number of biblical contexts in Jeremiah and Ezekiel the word Erev refers to soldiers. Erev. Similarly, Israel Cole, professor of Hebrew University, it could be a cognate of the Akkadian Urbi, which is a type of soldier. Erev. The word, second word, Rav, means great, many, multitude. So that is what comes up. For us in the Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, which I will share with you, that picks up on that cognate word. And Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael glosses on the word Erev Rav. And can you see? He says, Me'ov Esrim Ribo Divrei Rabbi Ishmael, 1.2 million, not just 600,000, Erev Rav. And Rabbi Akiva says, 2.4 million. And Rabbi Nasser says, 3.6 million. The idea is, it's Erev Rav, it's so numerous, whose number the Torah says is only 600,000, they say it. Okay. Now, we have another term for the Erev Rav, and that is by Kasuto. And Kasuto was a great scholar in the 30s and 40s, and he says that the correct view is regarding the expression of Erevrav is one word. Erevrav, he says, is the cognate of one word. And actually, in the Samaritan Pentateuch, it's one word, Erevrav. And so we have to come to the next mention of Erevrav, which would be in Numbers. And in Numbers, we are told the following. This is the whole thing about the Slav. And they were in the Midbar. There was multiple angers by God. Because they were complaining. In Baalosuchot, chapter 11 of Numbers. 
And so God lets loose the fire, Vayitzach Omel Moshe, and Moshe prays to God, and the fire stops. So he calls that place Bo'ara Vom Esh Tavara. Now, Vaha'asafsuf, what does that mean? The Asafsuf, the rabble, Ashebikarbo, hit Avu, started to crave Tava. It's a double lotion. We've talked about this in the past. Hitavu Tava, whatever that means. They craved a craving and they started to cry and says, Mi Yochanubaso, we remember the flesh pots of Egypt. Who will want to give us meat? Okay, so what's that got to do with Erevrav? Well, comes along Rashi and tells us, Vahasafsuf, Elu Erevrav. By the way, Asafsuf is also a hapax, nowhere else mentioned in the Torah. This is that rabble, this riffraff. <laughs> they are called Safsuf, and the Sifri in Bamidbar 86 says the root Asaf is to gather. And according to the Tana Rabbi Shimon ben Manasseh, it's a reference to the elders. Because it said back in uh, 16, Asfuli Shivim Ish, gather to me 70 men. But that's not the way Rashi is reading. He's saying it is the root Asaf, but they are, they are a, a complete rabble. They are a conglomeration who gathered onto the Israelites, meaning they came onto them. They, 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 they grafted onto them. They gathered onto them. But say some Mitzrayim. And so they are the ones that are now craving the flesh pots of Egypt. Robert Alter calls it a motley throng. <laughs> I love it. I love him. A motley throng, the Asafsuf, because he loves the sound of, of the doubling effect of Asafsuf. That's why I like riffraff, which comes from the French to riff. Whether it's a riffraff or a mixed multitude, they're not Israelites. So the question of us today is, how do we deal with the other in our midst that came up from Egypt? The foreigners who joined the Exodus. We already said they were Geirim. Rashi says they were Geirim. Let me share with you a dark medrash. Because you know I like it darker, right? And this medrash comes from the Mephilter. And... The Mechilta is bothered by, in Barsha's bow, that he killed in the Marcus Bechoros, Mi Bechor Paro, from the high-level, highfalutin Prince Andrew in the royal palace, all the way down, Bechor HaShavi. That means there's someone incarcerated and has a baby. She has a baby, and that one was also killed. So why the firstborn of prisoners were killed? And now comes this mashal. And remember, true to my theory from my PhD, that the function of the mashal is to conceal more than it reveals. Because mashal is a fictional narrative. So what do I need it for? Just tell me the nimshal. So therefore, there's something hidden in the mashal that the rabbis wanted the Adept to see through, and the Amcha not to see through. So there's a king who makes a festive celebration for his son. 
And at the same time, Vahorag Sonov, he's killing his enemies at the same time. So it's a double party, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an orgy for those who are friends of his son or his people who loved him. And it's a killing spree for his enemies. So the king says, Misha Ohevli, anyone who is a trumpy, come to me to Mar-a-Lago, and anyone who hates me, let them be killed. Right? Let them be killed. Notice it. Let anyone who hates me be killed with my enemies. So we have three groups. We have the son of the king and those who love the king, those who hate the king, but who are subjects of the king, and the enemies of the king. Kach, now the nimshal. Ha'elokim asa simcha le'Yisrael shegalan. And so, God made a festive celebration for the children of Israel since he redeemed them. Alma Elohim. So God says, Call me She'ohev li'yavovayismachim b'ni, anyone who loves me, Come and rejoice with my son. So the Ksherim, the card-carrying Jews of Mitzrayim, came to celebrate in Yisrael, and ascended with them from Egypt. The Ksherim of Mitzrayim, then, are those who love the king. Bani is Bechori Yisrael. Think carefully. Bani is Bechori Yisrael. Whoever wants to celebrate and is happy for me, come to my party. Come to the, the Seder table. Come to the Paschal Lamb. Those are the Ksherim Sheba Mitzrim. Ba'u va'asu Pesach in Yisrael va'olu imahem. They are the Erev Rav. The Ksherim Shemitzrayim, according to this very, very enigmatic medrash that alone among all the Mepharshim, that is Malamed Zchus on the Erev Rav, is there a Ksherim of Mitzrayim v'asu Pesach in Yisrael ve'inur. Shenema v'gam Erev Rav olu imahem. The Erev Rav, according to this medrash, are the Ksherim of, y- of Mitzrayim. The kol mi sheratsu shelo yigalu Yisrael, Mesu im habachorim, and those who hate me, those who hate me, lo yigalu Yisrael, let them die with the bachorim, as it says, vayach kol bachor mitzrayim, and he smoted kol bachor mitzrayim, meaning that there was from the palaces, the Pharaoh's firstborn son, and the question we had was, why the poor Nebuch lady in, sitting in jail who got raped by the guard and was having a bachor. Why should the bat bachor be killed? And the Medrash, in a very dark way, is saying the following. Since that captive was not a friend of the king, was not a Ksherim Sheba Mitzrayim, did wish the Israelites should not be redeemed, therefore the firstborn died with the Egyptians. Very dark. That is, even the houses in which resided members of other nations and those in jail, because they are enemies of God, i.e. they didn't want the Bechori, the Bani, to succeed. They didn't want Am Yisrael to get out of Egypt. 
they are therefore summoned to be killed as a Bukhor. It doesn't respect class. It wasn't just, it's from Pharaoh's son down to the Shevi. Very, very uh, interesting way of splitting the Mitzrim into the Ksherim of the Mitzrim and uh, the non-kosher Mitzrim who wanted our death. And the Erev Rav then represents the Ksherim of the Mitzrim in a very, very uh, unique way. Okay. When we go deeper into the Zoyar, we get the typical classic rabbinic response to the other. And we get it in a mystical way because it makes uses of gematrias. And the Zohar says the following, it blames many evils on the intermixing of Israelites with the Erev Rav, arguing that the term cannot refer to a mass of peoples who joined the Israelites, but for the Zoya, it's a specific shift of magicians in Egypt who worked from midday to early afternoon. Dahainu Erev Rav River meaning the evening, the eve of the great evening, which is the early afternoon. And these magicians use that time in order to practice their sorcery. So first, the, the, the Zoya says in 2.191a, they tried at first to stand against the Holy One's wonders. Once they saw the miracles and wonders that Moshe performed in Egypt, they turned to join Moshe. And the Holy One said to Moshe, don't accept them. And Moshe, just like with Mika that we heard, saw in the Yalkut last week, now that they have seen your power, they want to convert. And they will see your power manifest daily and they will know that there is no God but you. And Moshe accepted them. And in the end, Moshe is late coming down the mountain and God is proven right. Since this is the group that sees that Moshe is late coming the, down the mountain, makes use of that evening, that Erev of the evening, the Erev Rav, the Rav River, and forces Aaron to build the golden calf. And so the Zoya cites two leaders who cooked up the golden calf plot, Yunus and Yumbrus. These are Gre obviously Greek names. <laughs> they happen to be the sons of the wicked sorcerer Bilam. They sought to subtly convince the Jews to commit a horrific act of idolatry. And the Arizal picks up on the Zoya and says that they manipulated people's das, which represents their kundalini, because they began to have an orgy right around the golden calf. It's the deepest layers of the mind, according to the Arizal. They knew how to manipulate them psychologically. So the Arizal points out that the numerical value of Erev Rav is 474, which is equivalent to the dark side of Das. So we have this rabbinic tradition that the Erev Rav is a slur, it's a, it's a blight on Am Yisrael, and we are able to blame the Erev Rav for all the bad things that happen. I end up with uh, Gemara in, 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 in uh, Beitzah, 32b, the wealthy Jews of Babylonia will go to Gehenna. Why? Well, Shabtai by Marinus went to Bovel. He looked for, for, for work and he couldn't find none. He asked for food. No one would feed him. And he said regarding the Jews of Bovel, they must be descendants of the Erevrav. <laughs> because it says in, in Deuteronomy, show compassion to the neighbor. 
And anyone who has compassion on people, then he's a descendant of Abraham. And if he's not, then he's a descendant of, of Bilam and Yunus and Yumbrus and the Arabraf. So we, we're able to somehow categorize within our midst this fifth column that somehow is responsible for this. Now, I want to bring to you Shaul Magid's work on the politics of unconversion. They were conversos uh, after the Spanish Inquisition. Now, what happened when they made Aliyah in the 1600s to Sfas? And Reb Chaim Vital writes in his Eitzadas that Vital's, and I quote, idiosyncratic depiction of the Erevav advocating for their case and defending them against classical Jewish tradition. Now, why? Is intended as a biblical mirror of the conversos who were immigrated to Sfat during the first third of the 16th century in the hopes of being reabsorbed into the Jewish community. Because there was a machloikis halachically that if you were a converso, did you have to reconvert or could you be just reabsorbed? Okay, so we see an example there of a very, uh, let's say, uh, sympathetic view of the Eir of Rav. And he goes into that against basically what the Arizal and, and the Zohar said. But the majority, all the way down to today, consider the Eir of Rav to appear to be Jews but are imposters. And there's a lot of hatred and bigotry for them. Um, if I can quote from a Haredi leader today, in this generation we cannot be silent. Every Jew must stand up and speak out. There may be hesitancy to say something because the world is so sensitive and no one wants to trigger another, nor does anyone wish to be cancelled. <laughs> In reality, this is all the more reason to speak out because the heir of Rav knows how to silence dissent. And he goes on and on and on. I want to share with you a very dark part of our history. And if you read yesterday's Daf Ditti, or two days ago, called Heretical Kabbalah, I talk about uh, the, the Frankist school, because we're talking in the, in, in the Daf Yomi about Ein Dorsh and Masi Merkava Basholosh. Don't learn mystical stuff only with three people, not with more, because it'll be misunderstood. And what's the totza of that? All the heretical sects that came out of Kabbalah. Shabtai Tzvi and his disciple, um, Jacob Frank. And I talk about the Frankists because they were known as the Contra-Talmudists. They were non-Halachic believers. And they called the Talmudists, the Orthodox, the Erevra, the way Shabtai Tzvi did. So anyone who had this Gnostic knowledge of the secret of Kabbalah and the time for the Messiah has come were the elected and the Orthodox Talmudic 2,000 years of, of uh, tradition were the Erev Rav because they wouldn't accept the Messiah. And so I want to share with you this really dark tale um, about a city that I show you in the map. And if you look at the map of Poland, this city is a little village, it's a tiny little village that gained prominence, Wozlawice. Now remember, it's near Chelm, the wise men of Chelm. It's in the Lublin district, 
Tomashov, where the Kotzka Rebbe is, is right here. Um, Lansut, where the Ropschitze is here. Zhezhov, where I fly into when I go to Lizhensk. That's the, this week, we're, we're going to be celebrating on Chof Aleph Adar, the yard site of Rebeli Melech of Lizhensk. So in this pale of Poland is, by, alongside Hasidut, the Frankists. And the Frankist heresy, based after Jacob Frank and his daughter Eva, centers basically on Sabbatian notions of the coming of the Messiah. And I want to tell you this dark story because the Frankists were these adherents of the apocalyptic Frank who preached that Jews could hasten the coming of the Messiah by engaging in sin. And Gershom Sholem, in my Dafditi, I bring his article about the holiness of sin, Mitzvah Bahabab Avera, that you can actually, we've been Torah halachic Jews for 2,000 years, and that didn't bring the Messiah. Maybe we have to reinvent Torah or, in, or invert it. So Jewish men had to swap wives and commit incest, dancing around naked women. And when the spirit moved him, Frank encouraged conversion to Islam. How could that have taken place just down the road uh, from a Hasidish Shtibel? And what is interesting is that throughout this century, we only get the, the, the history from the Orthodox side. We don't get the true history of what was going on. Hardly a year went by in the Renaissance Poland where individual Jews or towns were convicted of a blood libel. And these had been initiated by the Catholic tribunals. Now, according to the Wojlawice blood libel, we have eyewitness evidence of what took place in the Wojlice Yizka book um, that was produced in Tel Aviv in 1970 by former Jewish residents of Wojlice. A lot of the survivors in Israel got together from different towns and made Yizka books. I have about... 60 downstairs in my library. They are amazing because they include the secular, the Zionist, the Bundist, the, the socialist, the communist, and the orthodox and the Hasidic. So you have an unbelievable uh, window into Hasidut as part of this large panoply of what was going on in that same town. Now this was Lawicha, belonged to the Countess Pototska. Pototska was a, a graf. He was a very wealthy uh, man and he owned certain towns in Congress Poland. And she got friendly with Jacob Frank's wife, Hannah, and settled Hannah and her children in the Pototska manor. And to harass and humiliate the anti-Frankists, Hannah and her pa patron demanded 2,000 guilders from the, the, the Jews of Wozlawice. And if they didn't receive payment, they would malshin. They would go to the Catholic Church and revive the blood libel. Here you have this tragic notion that a Jewish Jew will betray a Jew using the Christian blood libel in order uh, to exact revenge, to exact money. And so they didn't respond and the Frankists killed the child, planted the corpse in the home of a Frumayid, and then they called the police and uh, the great uh, historian Powell 
Majeshko writes in The Mixed Multitude, and I cited that a lot in the Duff Ditty two days ago, um, Jacob Frank and the Frankist Moon, in which the Vatican manuscript confirms that Jacob Frank instigated the Wozliacze affair. They rounded up the usual suspects, they uh, put them on trial, uh, they concluded that they were guilty, and the ringleader, the rabbi, uh, his, his corpse was tied to a horse's tail, dragged him through the streets, and then they cut him into pieces, burnt him to ash. And so here, there is no more horrible documentary evidence of infighting in which the two separate groups of Jews, one Talmudists and one Frankists, using this same metaphor of Erevrav to diss them, to diss them, uh, is, a, is a horrific example of that. And I want to, to tell you that that hasn't stopped. And let me quote, Secular Jews are the Erevrav who hate the real Jews. This was as recently as January 12, 2012, in the, in the uh, Israeli newspaper. This Godel Sheba Yisrael says, now that we see the violence, the baseless hate, the harassment, we know and we understand that their ways are not like our ways and that we certainly must distance ourselves from the Chilonim, for their inside is not like their outside, Toho Kabaro. They, the secular Israelis, are Erevrav who hate the Jews. A certified Godel B'Shebi Yisrael comments, and guess what he says, from the article from Kikar Shabbat. The seculars are the Erev Rav. And it's important to note that the term Erev Rav is this same reference to our Posuk. And the article goes on to say that he's complaining that there has been secularists have been making overtures to the Haredim, professing to have the best interests of the Haredim at heart, but recent provocations against the Haredim belie these earlier overtures, overtures and show the true colors of these people. Again, this fifth column that pretends to be the Ksherim Sheb Am Yisrael and in the end turns out to be nothing more than a fifth column trying to usurp us. It's a tragic history of the way we look at the other and I cannot end with that. I have to end on a, uh, on, on, on a mystical note. And so I'm going to share you the Chuas Chain. And he has a different spin on the Asafsu, uh, Talmud of the Baal Shem Kodesh, because what he is doing is saying, be careful. When you diss the other, remember the other is part of you. There is a Moshe within you, as the rabbi told us yesterday. There's a Bechina of Moshe in all of us. There's a Bechina of Avram Yisak and Yaakov. And the dark side of that is the Erev Rav. You need to integrate the Erev Rav that's you. And look what he says. He comes back to that same problem I had. What does it mean to crave a craving? It's a double lotion. It's redundant. What is the Tava? The Tava is that they had a Tava. <laughs> they had a desire for a desire. Any addict can tell you what that is, right? When you're feeling in a funk and you haven't yet acted out and you want to have a drink or go on an inappropriate website or gamble or whatever, you, your head is already in a funk. You're already craving the craving. 
That is the Tava. Why? Because the Mon was called Lechem Akiluku. The, the Mon was everything you wanted it to taste. And not only that, it was Mozon Lunefesh, it was soul food. So when you ate the Mon, it was healthy for the body and for Avodis Hashem. They used to make hamotzi lechem min hashomayim on it, not hamotzi lechem min arts. And every bit of the mon was, was, was absorbed. There was no excrement when they had the mon. No number two, no poop, nothing for the entire time. Because it came from shomayim, there was no motarot. There was nothing to have to do birurim. You didn't have to sift out the garbage from the good food. It was all good food. Avul hamon hayokulo zach. Vuruchani, ein shum chumrius. There was no chumrius in the ba, in the mon. Umachma zeh. So that was the complaint. Shelo hayu yachol lehit orer bekirbom shum tava, because it was totally ruchani. There was no tava for it. It was anything you wanted it to taste, but but you couldn't have a desire for the for 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 the brie and for the pinot noir. There was no desire for it. It was just there. And that's the Safsuf. Lochein hasafsuf asher bekirbo. Bekirbo then means the hasafsuf in us. Hitavu tava craves a craving. Kapirush hamafarshim shechoshku sheyiyebohem cheshekatava. I want to have a desire for a beautiful steak. I want to have that desire for a meal, for food, for good food, a foodie. So the Chuas Chain says, don't think the Asafsuf is the Erevav out there. It is the craving for a craving. It's the craving to feel validated, to feel the chosen people, to feel the one of God's children in the house of God. And to diss anyone else who's not part of that, who has a different view.